0: they receive a new nature. The miracle of salvation is not just the wiping of the slate clean of all the sins that are marked against you. It is the receiving a new nature. He didn't just get rid of the disease. He got new skin. And in the Christian who is newly saved, truly born again, he will be saved. Clean and one of the first things that God gives to a convert is a clean mouth. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher, Minister of our Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale. British Columbia here in Canada. And I'm saying it this way for the benefit of our friends in Liberia and for those in other parts of Canada who listen into our programs. It is our joy to bring the Lord's Word, and I trust that today the message will be a help and a blessing to you. This is part two on. The healing of the Captain Naaman, captain of the Syrian army, who was healed from his leprosy. Leprosy, that type of sin in the Bible, and of course the cleansing leads us to the work of Christ on the cross as he suffered, bled, and died to cleanse us from our sins. And that is the power of the gospel. My prayer is that you will understand the power of the gospel and that you will be saved, that the Lord will do a miracle of grace in your heart. And of course, we have the message today on that. And then we come to our final section on righteousness exalteth a nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. Now, today I'm, uh, as the final little message on why I hate the use of alcohol. And today we're dealing with why I hate alcohol when I see it becomes the devil's tool to lead multitudes into drug abuse. That is a desperate evil in our society. And so it could well be the first step to death, the first step to hell, the first step to the destruction of souls, because many turn from alcohol to drugs, drugs to hard drugs. And then of course it leads, as in the case of hundreds in this country per month, who die with drug overdose, and hardly a family has been unaffected by this ravage of drug abuse within this country. So stay tuned as we turn now to the message today from Second Kings chapter five on the healing of Naaman. For this Naaman, leprosy was incurable. In all of Syria, there was none to help, no physicians, no prophets, no wise men, none that they could turn to, to the path of health to stop it from advancing, just like the result of sin. Sin is incurable, unstoppable, and its results will continue to destroy the human heart. We see all of this in the worth of a cure. When you look down at verse 5 in this passage, you will see that the, the king of Syria, he eventually got the news through this little girl and whatever other channels. The news came that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal Naaman. And such was the value of this man, Naaman, that the king was willing to put up what we see here is a tremendous sum uh, of riches. In verse 5, you'll see 10 talents of silver, 6,000 pieces of gold, and changes of raiment. And if you had somebody to do a bit of negotiating, they could have upped the price, and they would have paid almost anything to find a healing for Naaman. Boy, Naaman was a valuable man, and out of the king's fortune, he would have paid anything. What is the value of your salvation tonight? We know Peter says that we are not redeemed by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. What did it take to redeem your soul? It took the death of God's own invaluable son. The the wealth of riches to redeem your soul is incalculable. And it shows the worth of your soul, and it shows the problem of sin that God was willing to send his son to redeem you and to bring you to himself. Now, we move to the simplicity of salvation in the cleansing. Now, there's a key word, and we're going to jump down the chapter just a little bit, because there's no way I can preach this verse by verse. But we're going to jump down to verse 11, and we're going to see a particular statement of this man, Naaman, when he got down to Israel, and he was… well, he first of all went to the, the king of Israel, and the king of Israel, he went into a rage and said, "'Am I God?' you sent a leper to me to be cured? And then Elisha got wind of this, and when he heard that the king was rending his clothes in anger at all of this, he said, send this leper to me. Send Naaman to me. And so he comes to him, and Elisha, he's in his house, verse 10, and he hears about the arrival of this mighty Syrian captain, but a leper, And Elisha doesn't even stir himself at all. He sends a messenger out to him, and he says, go and wash in Jordan seven times. And then Naaman, we're told in verse 11, was wroth. What? And went away and said, behold, I thought, I thought. He couldn't understand the simplicity of this. What did he think? I thought he would come out. I thought he would perform some wonderful things, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. He thought, but his thinking was all wrong and he couldn't come down to the level of the simplicity that is involved in all of this. When he was told to go to Jordan, a Jordan. If you have ever been there, I haven't, but I've read this many times, and I've seen this many times on videos and so on. And Jordan is just a little stream. It's a ditch, and it's got muddy, clay, murky water most of the year. Sometimes there's floods when it's rushing and so on, and I'm not sure if the water would be cleaner or dirty in that time. But most of the time, it's a non-impressive little river. And that's the one where he was sent to bathe seven times. And, of course, he comes up, but in Damascus, we've got these great rivers, and they're pristine, clean, and they're deep. What's wrong with them? And again, he protests. And really, the plan that Naaman had for this man, it was too simple. And it wasn't until the reasoning of his servants in verse 13— his servants came near and spake unto him, said, My father, if the prophet had said, bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? Some great thing. And that's the thinking, isn't it? That's the thinking that so many have when it comes to salvation. I need to do some great thing to be a Christian, to be accepted by God, to impress God with my performance and with my works. And the work of the preacher, as we come to the gospel message, is to impress upon men that salvation is not by human works. It is not by self-righteousness. It is not by man's doing it is by man surrendering to the finished work of the cross. When the Roman jailer was scared out of his wits after the earthquake, and he came to Paul and Silas said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? One simple thing was given. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And we know that he did, because he was later baptized and so on. And so the message of the gospel is so simple. Simple in the sense is we do not do some great thing. We need to recognize the greatness of the cross, of Calvary, and what Christ has already accomplished, that it is done, 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 and done forever. And what we're to do, our work, if you call it work, is to believe. That's it. Believe. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that ye believe on whom the Father hath sent. And so, all around us, there are many people who say, well, surely if I'm going to be a Christian or to get right with God, I must do some great thing. No, you must do the humble thing. You must do the thing that is most required to believe on the Lord Jesus. Now, I had a list of things here. I don't know if I'll preach them tonight. I had a list of things that people consider. I'll not preach them, but I'll give you just a few suggestions here. Some people want some great thing done over them. Maybe something like the pope coming out with a crook and touching someone on the nose or the head and transferring some spiritual power from the the clerical garb or the, uh, the instrument that he's carrying and conveying it right into the life of the person. Some people would call that a great thing. Or in a charismatic meeting where people go along the line and they seek to slay people in the Spirit, that they fall backwards. That's some great thing in their estimation. I thought! And then there's others who say, well, I want to give a a, a really big donation to the church. And out of my wealth, I'm willing to give a huge sum of money. What do you do? Get them to talk to the treasurer? What do you do? You say, well, If God leads you to donate to God's work, but remember, it won't save your soul. Even you give a million, even you give ten million, it won't save your soul. You're not saved by some great thing. You're saved by simple faith, trusting in the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. You see, Naaman, at the end, was never going to have an opportunity to boast— that he had any part in his healing. He would never go back to Syria and say, I'm not only a great captain, but I had a part in healing my own body from leprosy. He would never say it. In fact, he might even be a little bit sheepish to go back and tell the story. He told me to bathe in a muddy river seven times, and when I came up the seventh time, I was completely clean. It was so simple, it's almost embarrassing. And that's how the gospel is. How did you get saved? You looked to the cross, to the dying wounds, the bleeding wounds of Jesus. You trusted in a finished atonement. And it's done. You're healed. You're saved by faith alone. And what do we boast in? Not in our doing. We boast in the cross. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. We boast in our Savior. We boast in God's mercy. But we can never boast in ourselves. It is so simple. We move to the proof now. Verse 14, the proof of the cure was in the skin as a little child. It says here, then he went down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. We're always amazed at the purity, the softness, the newness of a child's skin. That's why we love when our grandchildren want to come and sit on our knees, and we can just put our hand on their little knees or their hands, and we can feel that young childhood skin. I don't think there was a newborn baby in this example, but just a child. And that man Naaman, who was a body filled with sores, a fungus creeping all over him, was now a new man, literally, physically a new man. He was made anew. And of course, this is the proof of his faith at work, of the healing at work, he had the ch- skin of a child. But the comment, I want you not to miss the comment uh, that is given at the end of verse 14. Not only was he, did he have the skin of a child, but he was clean. He was clean. Let me suggest to you the application of this the evidence of a person who has been washed in the blood of Christ, whose sins are gone, who is justified by the gospel, they receive a new nature. The miracle of salvation is not just the wiping of the slate clean of all the sins that are marked against you. It is the receiving a new nature. He didn't just get rid of the disease, he got new skin. And in the Christian who is newly saved, truly born again, he will be clean. And one of the first things that God gives to a convert is a clean mouth. Before we are saved, we are loose-tongued, worldly talk, filthy conversation. But when you're converted, your tongue will be cleansed. And it won't be soap and water it will be the power of the gospel giving you a new nature. Deeper than that, there is also the passion for sin is killed. That's the miracle of God's salvation. The wicked things that we once loved, they now become a shame and we turn away from them. The born again Christian is saved, receives a new life and works by the power of a new nature. Now, the miracle is that the law of God is written in our hearts. This is the wonder of it. The truth, the nature of God is given right into our hearts. Now, how did this play out in this man, Naaman? He's going to be in a very difficult situation. You'll notice his profession here in verse 15. He says, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And so there is his profession of who is the true God. And at least he came back to thank Elisha. He didn't just go straight home from the river Jordan and forget to return, he wasn't like those nine uh, lepers. Uh, that just went away home and never thought of thanking. And here he is, he professes faith in the Lord, and this is the marvel of redemption. It is the power of the God of grace, the God of uh, of Christ, the God of Calvary, that we profess when we become a Christian. Now, as you go down to verse 17, you will see that this profession of the true God means that he will not worship a false god. He He's not going to be an ecumenist. He's not going to try and straddle a fence. But he's going to say here in verse 17, for thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods. And so there is in the heart of Naaman a new skin, a new nature, and a new loyalty. He's going to be loyal to the God that has healed him. And the Christian will be loyal to the one who has redeemed him, bought him with his own precious blood. Now in verse 18, he professes again, and he says, when I go back to Syria, and being the king's right-hand man, I'm going to be leading the king into the house of Rumen. This is the temple of the Syrians and when I'm there, what do I do? And he says, he leaned on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, When I bow down myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon thy servant. Now, he's going to go back to Syria. He's going to go back a different man, and he's going to go back a loyal man to the God of Israel, and he's going to walk a very difficult walk in how to serve the king and be faithful to God. And he foresees the difficulty that he's in. That's the battle, that's the struggle that every Christian has in this world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We are caught up in the the ways of this world, but our hearts are not in it. And the least you can say here in the end of verse 18, that when he goes to that house of Rimmon, Naaman's heart will not be in it. And he pleads pardon for it all. And Elisha says to him, go in peace. And so, he departed from him a little way. Christians are separated unto the gospel. Now, we use that book in our denomination. That's the title that's been given to the book, but it is a gospel text. Romans 1.1, Paul, an apostle, separated unto the gospel. Paul had been a Jew, Paul had been a Pharisee. He had served self-righteousness. But when he became a Christian, he was separated onto the gospel. And every Christian ought to be. You can no longer worship the idols of this world. You can never join in in the sinful pleasures of this world. You are now a Christian to walk a new walk, and to live a new life. What amazing miracle we see in the life of Naaman. Go wash and be clean. And do we not have that gospel message tonight? You come tonight with a burden. You come with the plague of sin. The gospel says to you, go! Where do you go? To Calvary to the cross. Wash and be clean, and then you go and live a clean life by the grace of God. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Gallagher. I trust that today the Lord has already blessed and that you will continue with us right to the end. Our final segment here is on righteousness of the nation, and I've been dealing with reasons why I hate the use of alcohol. And I hate the use of alcohol when I see how it becomes the devil's tool to lead multitudes into drug abuse. When people become dependent on booze and hard liquor, they are preconditioned to seek the greater power of hard drugs. In most cases, the use of drugs is preceded by the use or abuse of alcohol. People commence with alcohol because of the peer pressure in youth and the social pressure in parties. The use of alcohol at gatherings and social events is so prevalent that it is perpetual pressure to conform to the social norms of drinking. Then, when that line is crossed and a young man or woman goes along a path that makes it normal to take alcohol, then the next step is to drug use. To smoke pot or take a pill that gives a greater high than alcohol can give becomes the obvious choice to the unthinking. Before long, that first drink leads to the breaking down the barrier to a life of addiction of various kinds. Hard drinking is never far away from hard drugs. The cycle from sobriety to alcohol use, pot use, popping narcotic pills, soon leads to shooting up and hard chemical drugs that kill. Who can deny the link between alcohol use and drug abuse? With the hundreds and thousands that are dying in our nation each year due to drug overdose... We need to stem the tide of addiction, and we need to begin with alcoholism. I also hate the use of alcohol when I see how it works contrary to the fruit of the Spirit in a Christian's life. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murderers drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I often told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is a list given by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 of the works of the flesh, and they smack of the fruit of alcoholism. Uh, These evils, murders, fightings, revelry, and envying, drunkenness. These are things that are the works of the flesh. And then we have that list of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Well, if you're going to take that seriously, and every Christian should, then we need to be done with alcohol and its use and abuse, because we don't want to serve the flesh, we want to walk in the spirit. and alcohol leads contrary to love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Uh, alcohol leads to excess, to a life of waste, a life of uh, hate and uh, acrimony it is contrary to the work of grace. And for this reason, Christianity has denounced the use of alcohol and called God's people to pour it down the drain. Don't even keep it in your home to be of temptation to yourself or to your children. Don't give anyone the example of drinking wine, for it may not destroy you, but it may well destroy the lives and souls of others. In our families and in our church— There will be people who struggle with addictions, and we ought not to be the one that leads them deeper into that. Finally, I hate the use of alcohol when I see the many fine alternate beverages in our food stores, and they are mocked by social drinkers as well as heavy consumers of alcohol. Those who choose to abstain from alcohol are also mocked, even in some church circles. I'm glad that I serve in a church where the use of alcohol is preached against, prayed against, and the godly who seek to live alcohol-free are encouraged to do so. We are to take the Apostle Paul's advice in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is uh, excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Let us, each one, live a Spirit-filled life, and we will have done with this evil of alcohol. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to W L